Good morning, New Life Manitou. If you guys would please stand with me for the reading of the scripture. We will be reading out of 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6, 8 through 9, and 22, verses 1 through 2. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon, because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, You can be seated. Hey, my name's Brett. I'm the associate pastor. Hey, what's up? I'm the associate pastor here at New Life Manitou. Um, Joe... Our uh, lead pastor is uh, on vacation. He'll be back next week, and then Erica and the children will follow, I think, uh, seven days later. He's going to be batching it for like a week or so. Uh, They're coming back later. Um, If you guys don't mind, let's pray right now. Um, I feel like this morning, this sermon kind of took me by surprise. I'm always preaching to myself, is really who I'm preaching to, um, as I as I prepare, um, but this sermon, it, it surprised me, um, the direction uh, that it went, and um, I, I pray, I hope, I, I trust that that was God's spirit at work, and so, um, but it's one of those things of, I think we all need to kind of center ourselves and uh, ready ourselves, because um, I think the spirit has something to say to us this morning, so, um, spirit, come, come. Holy Spirit, in this place right now, we invite you and we welcome your work in our lives um, as we um, as we trace these moments in David's life, and as we reflect on um, the moments in our lives where we're given things that surprise us, and um, as we submit all of our lives to you, we um, recognize that. Um, we can't save ourselves. Uh, that's why we're Christians. 
times. We, um, we cast ourselves on you and we say, you are the one who saves us. Um, every day, at the moment of our death, um, the moment of our birth, you are the one breathing life into us and forgiving us, loving us, transforming us. And so we ask um, in these moments that you would do that right now. Uh, we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. So we're winding down, if you didn't know, we're winding down our series on uh, 1 Samuel and 1 Samuel, Kingdom and Chaos, um, including this week. If we include this week, we actually have three weeks left in, uh, in this book. And spoiler alert for those of you who are not aware, um, David never gets to the throne of Israel in this book. If that's what you're waiting on in this series, I'm sorry. Um, Joe, actually, Joe, I think, mentioned it a few weeks ago, but he, David never ascends to the throne um, in 1 Samuel. That's the beginning of, of, of 2 Samuel, of 2 Samuel, uh, where, where that happens. Uh, 1 Samuel actually ends in chapter 31. It ends with David in exile. So David's not even like in the country anymore. Saul and his son Jonathan die on a battlefield. The Philistines, the arch nemesis of Israel at this point, they string, it's gory, it's awful, it's Game of Thrones. Uh, They string up the bodies of Saul and Jonathan on the walls of their city. And the Israelites, now kingless, retrieve and bury those bodies. So all in all, we could say that 1 Samuel ends on a very high note, right? (laughs) It's in a really sweet spot. Um, If, uh, it was kind of a dark joke, wasn't it? I'm sorry. Um, If you want like a good map, if if you need like framework for 1 and 2 Samuel in your your head, uh, 1 Samuel tells the story of Samuel being born, here, Samuel, here I am, sort of stuff, and King Saul. And then 2 Samuel tells the story of David reigning in Israel. That's the, those are the Saul and Samuel and David. Um, David ascends the throne at the beginning of 2 Samuel, and then all the stories of like David on the throne, like David and Bathsheba and the birth of Solomon, and then David's son Absalom overthrowing him and taking over the kingdom, if you didn't know what. And then um, there's the twilight of David's life. All of that takes place here. It takes place in 2 Samuel. Um, We're not touching any of that in this series. We're just in 1 Samuel. And as we're winding down in 1 Samuel, um, these next three weeks, what we're going to see is we're going to see David on the run. David's just in the run. He's like, it's like the fugitive or something. Old movie. I'm dating myself at this point. Harrison Ford. It's really good. If you had not seen The Fugitive in a while, it holds up. It's one of those good movies that like still holds up. Uh, David's like on the run in the woods. David's like gathering a, a people loyal to him. And David, time after time, David is refusing to kill Saul. It's remarkable. David refuses to kill Saul. He refuses to take his own life, his, the promises of God, into his own hands. Um, I think that's because, you could throw that slide up, at this point in his life, David has like crystal clarity that the future is not a possibility to secure. 
It's not some possibility that he has to secure. Rather, it's a gift that he is invited to receive. That's a reminder throughout this book. That's what we're going to see David doing. He's just like, I'm not going to take it in my own hands. I'm not going to take it in my own hands. It's just, if God wants it, I'm going to have it. (laughs) I'm going to receive it. Um, Though all looks bleak, though the circumstances make no sense as I am running through the woods, fugitive style, though I cannot imagine how the future will unfold, the future is a gift. Not something I have to secure. Not something I have to do. It's a gift that I breathe it in. I just receive it. I just receive it. David keeps trusting that God's future is good. God's future is good and I don't have to make it happen. I don't have to make it happen. Uh, Jesus actually puts it this way. He's actually obeying Jesus, though he comes centuries before. He's, he's obeying Israel's God in the flesh. When Israel's God in the flesh says, Therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body or what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds in the sky. They don't sow seed or harvest grain or gather crops into barns. Yet your heavenly Father... He's a father. He's a a good, good father, and he feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they are? Who among you, by worrying, can add a single moment to your life? Who can make it happen by worrying? Therefore, don't worry and say, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Or what are we going to wear? Gentiles long after all those things. The nations, people who don't know God worry about those things. Your heavenly father is a father. He's a father and he knows that you need them. Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, things to be lined up rightly as God wants them to be. And all these things will be given to you as well. Am I the only one in the room who needs to remember this? Who needs to... Who needs to, right? Who needs to hear this? Uh, We could say it this way. uh, The future doesn't want anything from us except patience, faithfulness, and trust. Right now in the present, that's all the future wants from us. You don't have to make the future happen. All that's required of you is patience. That's hard. Faithfulness. Do the right thing, keep at it, stay on the path, and trust. You're the king, David. This is what David's living right now. You're the king. That's not something that you have to secure. It's happened. It is a future you will receive. You just need to have patience. Trust your father. Trust that God knows. Trust that God cares. God cares. God will provide. Just keep following him faithfully. Just keep trusting him. All these things will be given to you. Even when we get it wrong. Even when we're panicked and impatient 
and our faithfulness is flailing and our trust is weak, even when we cannot be trusted, even when we are unfaithful, God continually reminds us that God can be trusted, that God, God, that God, God is faithful. He's the faithful one. It's not us. That's what we actually see in this story here today in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. David is not a perfect guy. Sorry for like Sunday, to destroy like your Sunday, Sunday school flannel graph image of David. But uh, he is, today in our story right now, he is hungry and lying to Ahimelech the priest. Say, saying verse 2, he's saying that he is on a secret mission for the king. Did you guys notice that? Like, I'm pretty sure you're not on a secret mission to the, for the I'm pretty sure he's trying to kill you, David. Um, he, he's, he's feeling like defenseless and vulnerable, and suddenly the same guy who stood in front of a giant in the Valley of Elah years earlier and shouted, It is not by sword or by spear that Yahweh saves. Suddenly this same guy is like itching for a weapon. I'm hungry. Vulnerable? Somebody please get me a weapon. For years, he trusted himself, swordless, weaponless, to be protected by Yahweh from the bear, from the lion, from Goliath of Gath. But now, as life begins to like feel like it's spinning out of control, David like wants to take his own life, his own future, into his, ha- his own hands, you know? I'm on a, I'm on a secret mission for the, for the king. Give me, uh, verse three, he says, give me whatever food you got on hand. And, and don't you have a, a sword or a spear or something here? Because I, I don't have a weapon because uh, the king, verse eight, the, the king's mission was so urgent that I had to leave quickly for it. Does anyone else find this, like, really encouraging, like, when you see David doing this? David's not, like, some sort of anxiety-free zen master, you know? He's not just floating around, like, passionless, emotionless, fearless. If we watch carefully, if you read, read the Bible. It's, it's really cool. Read the Bible. If we listen to the story, it seems like David suddenly, like, panicked. He's, like, panicked. Oh, my gosh. I am being chased by Saul. I am an enemy of the state. I got no food. I got no defense. I got no allies. What am I going to do? And so David does what any of us would do. He arrives at the city of Nob and he lies to a priest. <laughs> that's what, let's get honest. That's, that's what any of us would do. Would do. Yeah, I'm on a secret mission uh, from the king. It's really important. What kind of provisions do you have? This leads us um, to a quick note, um, a quick note, side note, on how to read the Bible. We could say it this way. People in the Bible are not moral models for us. People in the Bible are are moral mirrors of us. If you're ever confused as to what's going on in the Bible, why is the Bible filled with such broken, disgusting, awful people, unfaithful, slobs? It's because it's us. The Bible's filled with us. The Bible's not filled with people who are moral models for us. The Bible is filled with people who are moral mirrors 
of us. You're going to be endlessly confused if you read the Bible expecting people to always be acting right. If you're expecting biblical figures to be like a model of good behavior for you or something like that, you're going to be like scratching your head a lot. Abraham has sex with a slave. Jacob steals, lies, cheats, swindles. Joseph is kind of like an arrogant punk of a kid. Moses killed a guy with a trident. It was, it was ridiculous. Anyway, uh, And here... Here, David is lying, that he's lying to a priest. Can we just name that? He's like all of us. He is forgetful of God's faithfulness. He's forgetful. Who was it that um, defeated that giant, David? Oh, yeah, it was God. Who is it that's been caring for you and protecting you in the hard seasons in Saul's court? Oh, yeah, it's God. Oh, who has promised you a good future and a hope? Oh, yeah, it's God. Yeah, but have you seen what's going on right now in the present? Have you seen that? I got no food. I got no sword. I got no allies. I got to lie to this priest. That's what's got to happen. It's not, a, it's not a model for us. It is a mirror of us, is what it is. We are all like David. Can we just say that here in church? We're all like David, and it's so encouraging because even when David is not being faithful right here, God remains faithful right here. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 When we are not faithful to God, God remains faithful to us. That is the gospel, by the way. This morning, someone needs to hear that um, because you're following God and you've, you've like experienced seasons of following him faithfully, maybe, but suddenly life is collapsing. It feels like it's spinning out of control and you feel impatient and distrustful of God and you know that you're falling into unfaithfulness. You know it. Here's a mirror for you. Here's a mirror for you. What happens to David, even when he is being unfaithful? God is good. David gets provided for. God remains faithful in spite of David's unfaithfulness. God gives David what he needs. That's what he needs. Every answer is actually surprising here in this text because it looks nothing like what David expected. God is faithful to us. Can I get an amen? He's faithful to us even in our unfaithfulness, but his gifts are very often surprising. His gifts are very often surprising. There are three brief moments in the story that, of David receiving like really surprising gifts from God. Uh, first, uh, David wants fresh food. That's what he comes in demanding. And David gets some stale loaves. That's <laughs> what he gets. Verses 1 through 6. David's like faint with hunger. I mean, he's ducked out of a, the new moon feast is what he said. No, like, I'm leaving. He left a feast. And he comes in like hungry. He's hungry and he comes in asking, what have you got on hand? Like verse 3, he says, like, uh, what, I'll take anything. Like uh, five fresh loaves. If you got that, five loaves of bread, please. Or whatever you got on hand. And Ahimelech, like, scratches his head and says, well, all I got, verse 4 is what he says, all I've got here is the sacred bread of presence. That's all I've got. It's like this 
Super symbolic bread is what he's saying. I've got this super symbolic bread. According to Leviticus, 12 loaves of bread were to be baked weekly and then like set out on a table as like a a symbol, a sign of loyalty between God and his people, between Yahweh and his people. And each week, verse six, you see it actually here in verse six, each week when the new loaves get baked and set out, the stale, crusty ones uh, are given to the priests. The priests, and only the priests, are allowed to eat the bread of presence. But the most surprising thing happens here. Ahimelech, like, reads the situation. He seems like he's just like this faithful man of God, Ahimelech, and he, he says, okay, this hunger is more important than, like, the letter of the law right here. And so he gives the holy bread to David. David, with his, like, audacity and his de- and his desperation, he, like, he comes in and like waltz, he waltzes in and he lies to this priest. And he gets provided for. God's faithful. He feeds uh, a liar from the table of the Lord. That's <laughs> what happens here. It's less fresh than David wanted, but it's actually more loaves uh, than David expected. It's less fresh than he wanted, but it's more than he expected. It's 12 loaves. Trust the Lord, David. Your father provides. And the second gift comes in verses 8 and 9. David wants a weapon to defend himself. What David gets is he gets a relic to remind himself. That's what he gets. He feels like naked and defenseless. I got no sword, he says, verse 8. He says, um, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was so urgent. So the priest like scratches his gray head again. And he's like, well, we got something. But it's more like relic than weapon. I mean, it's big. The priest disappears behind the ephod, is what it says, which seems to be some sort of kind of statue right here. Um, It's kind of an unusual use of the word. And then he comes back, and he's carrying like this bulky bundle wrapped in cloth, and he like unwraps it. And you can tell from the way David talks that he has like an emotional reaction right here. He's like, there's none like it. It's the sword of Goliath. Years back in chapter 17, a young, swordless, defenseless David had looted this sword off of Goliath after a, like a miraculous victory. And over the years, apparently, somehow this sword had made it to this shrine in Nob. It's become something of like a holy relic that people would like revered by like visitors and locals. It's the sword of Goliath. Based on the descriptions that we're given of Goliath in chapter 17, of like of his other weapons, they are freakishly big and heavy. And the sword probably isn't ideal for anyone to wield unless you're like nine feet tall and able to wear 125 pounds of armor. That's the kind of sword we're talking about. But it's Goliath's sword. How, I mean, am I the only one who kind of nerds out when I hear this? It's like, it's Goliath's sword here. But what am I going to do with it? What am I going to do with Goliath's sword? 
I mean, it might be freakishly big and heavy and maybe even still sharp, but I can't wield it, not easily. But it's like this tangible reminder that Yahweh delivers. It's the last we ever hear of Goliath's sword, actually. David says, there's none like it, give it to me. But we're never told that like, David uses it. He never uses it. Probably because it's terrible for combat. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's less functional than David wanted, but it does far more than David expected. It's less functional than he wanted, but it does far more than he, because it whispers to David his own words from the valley of Allah back to him. It is not by sword or spear that Yahweh saves David. David asks for a sword, but what he gets is like this artifact, like a relic, a reminder. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to defend yourself. Yahweh defends you. God is faithful. He's your father. Trust him. And then finally in chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, like David wants a stable army. It's really what he'd like. And he gets distressed misfits. That's what he gets. He gets a whole lot of them, 400 of them. He retreats to this cave, the, the cave of Adullam. And over a period of time, verse 2 of chapter 22, he finds himself surrounded by all those who are in distress or in debt or discontented. So those in pain, those with no money or few resources, and those who are disgruntled and dissatisfied. What a great company of people to be in, right? Just when you, like, you're on the run and you're desperate, suddenly you've got a bunch of desperate people surrounding you. Like, the first thing that the priest had asked David when he arrived in Nob is, why are you alone? Like, why is no one with you? And surely David felt it, right? He's fugitive style in the woods. He's alone. He needs people around him. Like, what kind of people? Strong people, resourceful people, influential people. That's the kind of people he needs. And what he gets is distressed indebted, discontented people. That must have been hard. Unless <laughs> I romanticize this for a, for a moment. Uh, David is in distress. David is in debt. He's got a bounty on his head. David has every reason to be discontented himself. He's the one who needs to be pulled up by others. And suddenly he's surrounded by a bunch of people who can't pull him up. He's surrounded by... A bunch of misfits. Must have been initially disappointing, right? <laughs> but what does verse 2 say? It says, he became their commander. These people are far needier than David wanted, but they're far more important than David expected. Because he, this motley crew, this ragtag group that David probably, he wouldn't have handpicked, become his people. They become his tribe. They become his, his family. And all of this uh, points us to um, this reality that God always answers our needs, but he frequently disappoints our wants. Yeah. Yeah. He 
frequently disappoints our wants. What David wants is powerful allies, a sharp sword, and fresh food. What David gets is distressed misfits, an old artifact, and some stale bread. But, but his needs are met. He is provided for. But we should probably take this one step, for, one step forward, and this is where um, it actually, um, spirit come, because this is where it gets really hard and really real for all of us. Because if you change one word right here, I think it gets um, even more to the point. Um, God, you can go ahead and throw that up. Uh, God always answers our needs so he frequently disappoints our wants. That's the truth. <laughs> That's the brutal, beautiful truth, isn't it? If David had had his wants met, if God had answered David according to his wants, God would have been depriving David of his needs. Of his needs. David is like at this crucial point in his life, and he'd really like for things to just go easy right now. Thank you very much, please. Um, But God has got to disappoint David's wants to make sure that David gets what he needs. If David had given if God had given David a bunch of like influential, powerful people that he probably wanted, David would have lost his roots, lost the little shepherd boy out in the wilderness. He might have lost himself. He might have just become another Saul, dependent on resourceful, powerful people around him. He needed distressed misfits who will keep him grounded and remind him what life is like out in the wilderness what life is like out in, outside of the palace. If God had given him a sharp, functional sword, David would have forgotten where ultimate security is, is what he would have forgotten. Granting a really strong want for David, I really want a sword, would have likely suffocated David's desperately deep need His need would have been suffocated. Trust your father like you once did. And so there are a lot of things in our lives that we really want. We really want them. Really, whatever it is that's like bubbling up in your soul, they're really important a lot of times. They're really good. They're really pressing things. God cares about your job. He cares about her health. He cares about your loneliness. He, he cares about his feeling trapped and stuck, whoever that is. And God has beautiful, incredible plans that outshine and outweigh anything that we can imagine. It is all going to be a happy ending. But God frequently disappoints our wants for the very sake, for the very purpose of giving us what 
we need. God disappoints our wants because God is giving us what we need. We think we need one thing, but what we really need is Goliath's sword. That's what we really need. What we really need is a reminder that God is faithful. That in spite of all of our unfaithfulness, God will fight our battles. God will win your battles. He will. You're not going to get everything you want, but you will get everything that you need. Life will win. Love will win. Hope, kindle it in your souls. Hope will not be disappointed. It will not. But our hope is anchored in a resurrection on the far side of the cross. It's on the other side, the far side of the cross. We want to avoid that, don't we? We want to avoid, like, pain and suffering and darkness and struggle and crosses whenever possible. But when God came among us, when Israel's God became one of us, when he became an Israelite, he showed us that what we need and what we want are often two radically different things. Jesus is praying in a garden on the night he was betrayed, and he wants one thing desperately, and he gets something very different. He gets something to, I want this cup, this crucifixion, this cross to pass from me. And then he gives his wants over to God. And he says, you know what's needed. Father, not my will, but yours. You know what I want. You know what I need. And you know what this world needs. I, I trust you. I trust you. And so all of us, unfaithful, untruthful, impatient, all of us are invited to trust our Father. We're invited to feast from his table. It's not always going to be the feast you're wanting, but you will get the daily bread that you need. So trust him. I don't know how all of this works, um, But God is still meeting a need even when he allows a cross. He's still meeting a need even when he allows a cross. And for some of you this morning, like, I'm sorry, I don't have any business telling you this. I don't have any business telling you that crosses are allowed for our good for our salvation, for our transformation. Because some of you have scary crosses, like painful crosses, bloody crosses, crosses that it might, they're killing you. They're killing you. Maybe literally. I don't have any business telling you any of this, that God somehow takes the designs of evil, the enemy's attacks, That God allows crosses for the sake of saving us. I don't have any business telling you except that's the center of our faith. That's That's the life of Jesus. That's the life of Jesus that we are inviting to come into us. When I look at Jesus, this is what I see. 
The schemes of darkness, the most dreadful of evil, the worst that can happen, the the wicked cross of Rome becomes a symbol of hope. It gets transformed. It gets redeemed. It gets reclaimed. The worst of crosses becomes the place where we confess that God was meeting humanity's deepest need. That's what we confess. On the far side of resurrection, we can see life and gratitude and beauty and hope. The cross is Goliath's sword. The cross is Goliath's sword. It's the thing we cling to. It's the living relic that we cling to, to remind ourselves historically, actually, literally, God is faithful. Evil loses. Love wins. Crosses do not stay the place of the dead. They become a source of hope and beauty for the living. I don't understand why crosses are allowed or exactly how they meet our needs all the time, but I trust Jesus. I'm trying to trust Jesus and to trust his Father, our Father. And this morning, um, as we come to the table, you're invited to trust him too. Trust that God knows. Trust that God cares. Trust that God is providing you what you need. Don't spurn stale loaves. Sometimes that's your daily bread. Keep following him faithfully. Keep trusting him. All things will be given. All things are coming. One day we will feast.